This is Radiance tape number JD27, recorded on July 2nd, 1971. The first in three tapes of the Church series by Jim Durkin. This first tape is entitled Building the Work of God. I'd like you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians and the second chapter in the 11th verse. I have had the unenviable position of having to watch a great movement spontaneously begun by the Lord's Spirit and spreading in a great many directions. Watch it take very many different forms. I'm speaking now of the Jesus movement. I've watched Christian houses spring up. I've watched Christian ranches spring up. I've watched Christian Bible academies spring up. And unfortunately, for the most part, I've seen them fall upon hard times and shut their doors down. Some of them fell back into grievous error, some into gross sin. Others never got out of the state of carnality, true state of carnality. Some accuse this ministry of being carnal. It is not carnal. It's carnal only in one sense. Some people think spiritual is when you have a few people that have been saved for 15 years, and that's all that you have, and they've just been together in a little tiny tight circle, and they all get together, and they sing, and they praise the Lord, and they say it's so spiritual. But that's not necessarily spiritual. It may be. It depends on what God has those people doing. Maybe spiritual. But that's not necessarily spiritual. And a work like we have that has a whole lot of untutored babes in it is not necessarily carnal. Now, if people want to call it carnal, that's all right, too. But I tell you this. If the definition of carnality is a lot of untutored babes in the ministry... And that's the result of a continual flow of people being saved and finding Jesus Christ, then Lord, give me carnality for the rest of my days. I say, though, to go back to the basic point that I'm making in my message, I have seen young people save, start out with great zeal and enthusiasm, get together, start a house with the best of intentions, and I've seen that house fall on hard times and collapse. Not only has this been true of houses, it's been true of ranches and churches and so forth and so on, and not just of the Jesus movement, of other movements long before it. It is a necessary thing for the man whom God uses to raise a movement or move it or teach it to understand God's principles of creating and developing something. Now, I give no credit to myself only to the hand of God in my life that has taught me certain essential truths that are necessary to understand. I'm going to pass those, as many of them, along as I can tonight. Certain things have to be understood that will happen to this movement or any movement as a natural course. It just will happen. There is no way to avoid it. There is no way to live that will cause us to miss going through some of these things. Now, this scripture that I particularly want to read is found in the 11th verse. It states simply, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And yet I tell you of a truth, the average Christian today is not only partially ignorant of the devil's devices, he is totally ignorant of the devil's devices. And not only is he ignorant of the devil's devices, but many times he is ignorant even of God's methods of doing things. 
So he has nothing to do but to fall back on his own carnal methods of creating something, or his own carnal methods of bringing something to pass. And if we're building only on our own carnal nature, our own carnal devices, our own carnal strength, believe me, we are an easy knockover for Satan when he comes against us. But if we have built according to God's plan, nothing can stop the building of that work, for it is founded on a rock. Now, let me take time to lay the foundation or the building stone of how a work must be built. Number one, the work must be built on Jesus Christ. Now, I know that sounds obvious, but it's one of those so obvious things that we miss it entirely. The work must be built on Jesus Christ. The men who build the work, the men who administrate in the work, the men who are called by God to preach in the work, must at all times disclaim any wisdom, any knowledge. They must refrain from taking any credit or any glory, and they must realize to the best of their abilities as God has opened their eyes, they must realize their own limitations, and they are great. As a matter of fact, I tell you of a certainty, the greatest revelation that ever came to me to prepare me to do some little bit of work for God came into two areas of my life that God revealed something. Number one, that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. None. There's not one redeeming feature to my personality. There's not one redeeming feature to my nature. There's not one redeeming feature to my mental processes. There is absolutely nothing in my flesh that is of any value to God. Because it's of no value to God, it's of no value to man. Now we may say, well, brother, you have an ability, don't you, to fix a car. Isn't that of value to man? My answer to you is this. If it is not sanctified in God, that is of no value to man. Brother, we are preparing ourselves. Sister, we are preparing ourselves not to take an automobile ride in America. We're preparing our lives for eternity. And we can get hung up in, wrapped up in, our little trips about the good things that we can do. Well, I want to tell you something. There isn't one good thing that I can do or that you can do or that any of us can do unless it has been inspired by Jesus, directed by Jesus, motivated by Jesus, unless he gives us the strength to do it, unless he lives through us, unless it's his flowing that produces the result. But so many preachers, including myself, for years struggled with trying to hold on to a tiny little concept that somewhere in me there was a lot of bad, but also somewhere in me there was a lot of good. And if Jesus could only remove the bad, the good would come shining through. But brother, I want you to understand that that great revelation which transformed my life was when I believed exactly what God said, that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. Now whatever good will ever exist in me, if anything good ever exists in me, is going to be because goodness is going to come from some outside source. I have to literally have goodness infused into me. 
Now understand, here I stand with no good thing in me. If any goodness is ever going to come, I can't learn it. I can't reform myself. I can't reconstruct myself. I can't go back and become a little tiny child again and get raised all over again, but this time differently. How many times have we said it? If I can only live my life over again. Brother, you can never live your life over again. One time only. We move onward, always. But goodness, praise his divine name, can be put into us. And that's the foundation. That's the beginning. That's the start of all things. And we must never lose sight of the source. The source of everything that is of value in this work. If anything is of value, that source, that base, that foundation, that structure, the capstone, the bottom stone, every part of that work is Jesus Christ infusing through it all. And that makes a holy temple unto the Lord. Now, nothing else is of any value whatever. So put away your wisdom. Put away your college trips. Put away your school trips. Put away your understanding of psychology. Put away your backyard psychiatry. Put away your knowledge of calculus. Brother, there may be a place for some of those things to be used by Jesus. But I'm going to tell you something there of no value and no ability and no worth. Just Jesus. He alone is of value and he is of worth. Now that must be understood as the very foundation stone any work that any of us will ever build. Now, do you understand what I said to you so far? That in you, in me, there dwelleth no good thing. Now, the second thing that God revealed to me, that if a work is to be built, it cannot be built on what the world would normally build it on. Now, I'm not talking about the foundation. I'm talking about the methods. The world immediately says, let's set standards for some particular group. Let's set some production standards, some standards to which we're going to attain. And normally those standards always fall in religious matters with outward observances. If we are going to be a Christian in this certain church, we will all talk this way. We will all dress this way. We will all carry our Bibles this way. We will all do this. We will all do that. We will all do something else alike and someone will impose upon a group of people some set of standards. That is utterly erroneous. The second revelation that God gave to me is that the work of God, if it ever has any meaning or ever has any value, must be built on one thing alone, and that is the love of God in our hearts. Now let me lay the foundation to you. And let me begin to give you the superstructure of a work. A man comes to us and he says, I want to get saved. I say to him, all right, will you receive Jesus Christ? Now we're going to get the foundation. Most people get the foundation right. They don't have a lot of problem with that, although they try to mix into the foundation a lot of other foolishness. And so they mix things up and they get something in with the foundation. If you receive Jesus Christ and join my church, you can go to heaven. If you receive Jesus Christ and believe the way I believe, you can go to heaven. If you receive Jesus Christ and, you name it, 
something with the foundation. But there is nothing with the foundation except to receive, submit, capitulate, let your life totally surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now we're going to build on that foundation, and what will we build? Immediately that the person gets saved, we say, now the first thing that we want to tell you now that you're a Christian is that here's what you must do. And we start telling them what they must do. You must do this, you must dress this way, think this way, talk this way, act this way, be this way, move this way, say this thing. That is all wrong. The first and most important thing that must be given to that person who has received Jesus Christ is an abundant measure, an overflowing measure, an all-encompassing measure of the love of God. That love must break him down. It must surround him. It must flood him. It must make him mellow. It must make him become soft inside until nothing... Nothing is left of that hard, rebellious, aggravated, angry, hateful, pushing nature. Because I'm going to tell you something, if something is left of that nature, then when you tell him what you want him to do, he will infuse into the thing that you want him to do, he will infuse some of that hatred, some of that anger, some of that wrath, some of that strife, some of that sedition, some of that rebellion. I have seen churches that were able to get people saved, and if I could give a quote on that, because many of them didn't last too long. They didn't grow up into the faith. They didn't become strong in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that church got them to receive Jesus, all right, but then immediately began to say, now here's what you'll do if you're a Christian. One, two, three, four, five, six. There's a time to instruct a Christian as to what to do. There certainly is. There's a time that you need to say to them, all right, now we don't do this, but we do this. There's a time for that. But I tell you something, the time for that is not when they're first saved. The time when they're first saved is to get them so filled and so flooded with the love of Jesus Christ that all of that nature breaks down and as quickly as we can. You see, when a person is first saved, he is generally not submitted totally to Jesus Christ. He really isn't. He is submitted at the moment he gets saved, but then a little later he gets up and says, well, I think I'm going to do this, I think I'm going to do that. Then we call him back, well, yes, I'm going to submit. No, I think I'm going to do this, I think I'm going to do that. All been through that. But when that overflowing, overwhelming, abundant love of God sweeps and floods our soul, all of that rebellion disappears, all of that struggle, and we just say, Jesus, I'm yours totally, completely, holy. I give myself to you forever. Now we're ready to build something on that life. But until that's there, nothing will ever be done. Now, turn with me, please, to the book of Galatians in the fifth chapter. Now, Paul here is speaking by the inspiration of the Spirit and making a contrast between the works of the flesh, which we had under our unsaved experience, and also a man under the law would have, and also a man not really committed to Jesus would have. He might be saved, but not really submitted. 18th verse. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, 
emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. Now you can see these same things operate in a work that's collapsing. You can see these same things work in a church that is falling apart. You can see these same things work in a church that is dead. I'm going to lay to you two other basic principles upon which we must build if the work is to be strong and solid and growing and forceful and vigorous. Envyings, 21st verse, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you're going to have to put your own interpretation on that. Myself, I don't think it has an interpretation. I think it is absolutely incumbent upon the child of God to be so filled with the love of God that these things have no place in his life. Or if they pop out at some point in his life, he immediately surrenders himself to God, gets them under the blood, does not justify them, does not play around with them. He simply is a man or a woman who manifests at all times the love of Jesus Christ. Now let me read this again. But if ye be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now I assume that means if you're not led of the Spirit, you are under the law. And the law is death. The Spirit brings life. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings. Oh, what a murderous thing to be in the church. Envying one another our positions. Some person is raised up and given a blessed gift and he prophesies and we envy him. Some person has a gift in tongues and we envy. Some person is ordained to eldership and we envy. Some person preaches a good message and we envy. It has no place in the work of God. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now we're talking about building the work. Now we want to build into the character of that new convert something. And I don't yet want to build things. I don't yet want to build observances. I don't yet want to build outward things because that could deceive him. That could deceive him into thinking because he is doing a few outward things that the church has set a standard for. For instance, if we tell a woman that she should wear a dress of a certain length and then she wears a dress of a certain length, she thinks, now I'm righteous. Or if we say, and she's wearing earrings, you shouldn't wear earrings, and she takes the earrings off, she thinks, now I'm righteous. Or a man, if we tell him, now every time you come to church, make sure you're getting a nice leather-bound Bible, you should pay at least $30 for a Bible, and you carry it under your arm like this so that it's over your heart. And then he comes by and he carries it under his arm over his heart and he walks into church and he thinks, my, I'm righteous. Now look around. Everyone in the church is doing the same thing. No, my friends, such standards and such performances are the most deceptive thing that could ever be built into the life of a young convert. They must realize that none of these outward observances have any value at all. Now there is a time when outward observances will have value. And they should be adhered to, certain of them. And I'll explain those at a later time. 
But I'm saying that in the beginning, these are of no value and no importance and should not be stressed or emphasized because they will produce not a gentle, loving Christian, but a critical, self-righteous Christian who is constantly looking. Here now he's learned to carry his Bible the right way. Amen. And then he walks into the church and he looks around and here's Brother Steve and he's carrying his Bible the right way and he says, praise God, that's a brother. And next to him is Terry and she's carrying her Bible and say, praise God, that's a sister. Down here, here's Dave and he's got his Bible walking along like this. My Lord in heaven, doesn't that man know? Amen. Instead of producing a gentle, loving Christian, it instantly produces a critical, watching Christian, watching not for the growth in a brother or sister, but watching for the errors in their life. Now I tell you something. You begin to get a spirit in your church, this church or any church, where the emphasis is looking for the shortcomings in people, and brother, you're going to find more and more shortcomings to look at until finally your church will be filled with them and the thing will fall apart. I'm going to begin looking for something. I'm going to begin telling people I'm looking for it. I'm going to begin telling them by faith I already see it and that I rejoice in what I see. I'm going to begin telling them that what I'm looking for in their life is not anger, wrath, strife, so that I can jump up and say, My Lord... See? Oh, that makes a great sermon. I used to preach like that all the time. I was a spiritual temperature taker. Run around and, you got a fever and I'm going to give it to you today. No, I tell you, that was the whole of my message. And I began to discover that my church had more and more high and low blood pressure than any place I'd ever seen in my life. My emphasis was wrong. Theirs wasn't wrong. Theirs became wrong. Now, I'll tell you what I'm going to tell them I'm looking for. Talk about building the work of God. I'm going to tell them what I'm looking for, and you start in the 22nd verse. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. I'm going to tell them I'm looking for love in them. Hallelujah. That I love them, that their brothers and sisters love them, that they're surrounded by love, and what? I'm expecting the love of God to come flowing out of them. Hallelujah. I expect to see them get slapped in the face and love. I expect to see them have to go to work at some kind of work that they don't like and they'll love. I expect to have to see them do the dishes and they'll love, cook food and they'll love, serve tables and they'll love. Go to church ten times a week and love every moment of it. Hallelujah. That's right. Love. I'm going to tell them I'm looking for the joy. You got any joy? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Brother, I want strong Christians. Hallelujah. So I'm not going to get up here too often and sing some song that makes people think I'm not much of a Christian. There are songs written like that, you know. But I'd rather have us get up here and sing, The joy of the Lord is my strength and joy. Love, joy. This is what I'm looking for. Peace. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Those are an outflowing of the life of Jesus Christ. Amen? You understand the nature of building the work of God. It does not have to do with form. 
I sometimes think God gave this church, this building, this lovely structure. I want to read a scripture. I think this lays down a basic principle. I'm not against a nice building. Maybe the day will come when we'll have this one all painted up and fixed up. We could do it now, but we'd have to shut down certain things that represent outreach and the saving of souls. I wish it were better, and it will be better someday. I wish the ranch were better, and it will be better someday. But then there's a value to it like it is, too. Turn with me to the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now here it's talking about Jesus, you understand. Prophecy in the Old Testament, referring to God's eternal Son when he would come to the earth. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. Now I want to show you an interesting parallel to that. This building has no form nor comeliness, and when we see it, there is no beauty that we should desire it. Then what are you doing here? There must be something else that brings us here. The Lighthouse Ranch. There is no form nor comeliness. And when we see it, there is no beauty that we should desire it. What a horrible place to live. Then I ask myself, if it's such a horrible place to live, why is it overflowing at all times and more people wanting to come all the time? I'll tell you why. Because there's someone else there who has no form nor comeliness. And there is no beauty in him that when we see him we should desire him. Nothing of the outward. No outward man of the always say, if I see Jesus, I just, oh, I know his, he'd be so beautiful. I don't know but what Jesus was an ugly man. Oh, some of them, that's sacrilegious. I don't believe it at all. The Bible says that he had no form nor comeliness. Comeliness means handsome looks or pleasant looks. But the Bible says he had no form nor comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was not as the pictures paint him. A halo shining around him. An ethereal look. A beautiful face. Glorious hands. Walking with perfect articulation as he came down the street. Then look at him, he literally floats down the street. I don't think so. I think you had to see beyond what was there. You had to hear the ring of truth in his voice. You had to hear the spirit by which he operated. You had to be of the truth to see the beauty that was in him. Hallelujah. And I tell you something, nothing has changed 2,000 years later. It's still exactly the same. Now, brother, you go to work and all men do it. Unless they've been trained by God to do it differently, all men do it. We immediately go to work on the outside. But the Bible says, God looketh not upon the outward appearance, but he looketh upon the heart. And that's where the Bible says, Jesus himself speaking, that's where a man's defilement comes from. That's where murder comes from. 
That's where adultery comes from. That's where wrath comes from. That's where strife comes from. That's where anger and railing comes from. Out of the heart, that's what defiles a man. And brother, that's where the man of God, if he's going to build a work, he has to work on the heart and not the outward. And I'm going to tell you something by the same token. You let Jesus deep down in your spirit and surrender to him and understand his principle and method. That's where the love is going to come from. That's where the joy is going to come from. That's where the peace is going to come from. That's where the long-suffering is going to come from. And that's what can change the ugliest old hobo into a reflection of the Son of God himself. It's that glorious life from within. Now that's what you build the work of God on. Now there's a time to add the outward. But not yet. Not yet. The man only has a little juvenile idea of serving God at this point. He's full of love, that's wonderful. He's full of joy, that's glorious. He's got the peace that passes understanding. Oh, he's going through trials and tests and ups and downs and he doesn't know what to do with himself. But he's still pretty much day by day occupied with his experience in God. It's a different form of the survival vision. In time, if something isn't done to lift him up completely out of that, he'll fall back into a real survival vision. And I'm going to take time because there's some new people here, and i got to talk to you about survival vision. All of us have borne into us a survival vision. We learn from the very beginning not to get too close to a cliff because we may fall off and get hurt. We learn that we're to eat a certain amount of food. We're to take care of ourselves that we bleed. We're to make sure we got proper clothes on. If we go out and it's cold, we get out of the rain if it's too cold. All of those things we do, and they are a survival vision. We take care of ourselves. My mind is on myself. If I get a sliver in my hand, that's of 10,000 times more importance to me than if I read in the newspaper that 30 million Hindus are starving. I read that and I say, 30 million Hindus are starving. Yeah, brother, I'll get around to that. But right now, I've got a sliver. And I've got to take care of myself. I want you to get a needle. I want you to get a flame. I want you to get over here and do this. I want this. I want this. I want this. I want Get that sliver out. Oh, oh, now I feel so much. That survival vision. Now, we go beyond that in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've come out of ourselves a little bit. We have seen him as the center of our lives, but now we're seeing us in him. And we're seeing our joy and our love and our peace and our happiness and our this and our that and our, oh my, the Lord's doing this for me and I'm getting this and I'm getting that and I'm getting the other thing. You know, oh, isn't it wonderful? Yes, it is. For a baby Christian, it is wonderful. Even though you be a hundred years old in the Lord, may you never lose times in which it's just the Lord and you. There has to come a vision into your heart, and that's the third point in building the work of God. You need to lay down a vision for young people. So magnificent is it in its scope. So impossible is it in its attainment. So demanding is it of our strength, our skill, our time, our ability, our life. So magnificent is its value. 
that we forget ourselves completely and become consumed by the vision. Consumed by the vision. The Bible says without a vision, the people perish. That's why some of these houses which have been formed with the idea, brother, we're all going to live together to cut expenses. What kind of a vision is that? We're all going to live together, brother, to have a good time with each other in the Lord. What kind of a vision is that? There must be a vision of such magnificent scope that men and women are able and ready and willing and gloriously willing to lay down everything to pursue that vision. Paul said, I am pursuing after that for which I have been apprehended by Christ. He had a vision. He said 30 years after that first vision came to him, he stood before the Pharisees. They wanted to take his life. The Romans one day would take his life. They would put him in prison. He had been beaten. He would be beaten again. But when he stood before that mob that was howling for his blood, he said, I testify unto you this day, men and brethren, that I have not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. And you know what that vision was? Jesus Christ told Ananias what that vision was. He said, Ananias, I want you to go and pray for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. Ananias said, Lord, I have heard of this man, how many Christians he hath hailed into prison, he has put him to death, he has done much evil to thy church. The Lord said, go to him and pray, for I have chosen him, I call him. I will send him far hence to the Gentiles. And I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. That was the vision. Paul, I'll send you to the ends of the world, Paul. I'll cause you to cast my name everywhere, Paul. But you're going to have to lay down your life. You're going to have to die. In other words, you're going to have to give up your survival vision to take my vision. And Paul said, gladly, Lord. Gladly will I do it. And he said he had suffered the loss of all things and did count them but dung that he might win Christ. Oh, brother, that's the giving up of the survival vision for reality. That's the way the work of God must be built. On Jesus Christ, work on the heart, the life, so that the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the gentleness, the goodness, the meekness, the kindness, all of that comes. And then hold before that person a vision of such inestimable value that for the first time they look up and all of their lifetime they've been interested in themselves and they're a little, what will I do? Will I get to heaven? Will I find the truth? Will I really know? Will I this? Will I that? Suddenly they stop and they see it. The Lord holds it out there and says, this is what I've called you for. And we look at that and say, Lord, everything, Lord. That's how you build a work. When you start building a work on that foundation, let me tell you something. Satan doesn't care what kind of a church we build if we build it on outward observances. Doesn't care what kind of a church you build, how big it is, how influential it is in community affairs, if you build it on outward observances, if wrath or strife or sedition or politics or whatever or social gospel is the basis of it, you can build it as big as you want and Satan will even help you build it. I'm going to tell you something now. Once you get into this fourth thing that I'm going to talk about, remember now, we've got on the foundation Christ. We're all on one foundation, right? All building with love, joy, peace, gentleness, these gifts, these fruits of the Spirit are manifesting themselves. 
Now we've all caught one vision. This brother way over here, brother, he's caught that vision. And he stands there and says, Oh, Lord in heaven, I gladly lay down my life for that vision. And here's another one way over here, brother. He's a different kind of brother altogether, got a whole different background, a whole different system of values. And suddenly he sees that vision. He says, Lord in heaven, I'll give up my whole life to have that vision. He starts to walk toward, brother, I don't care what their background is. I don't care what their background is. They'll begin working together. That love will meld them together. That joy will be a joint joy. It'll be a unity, a unified joy, a unified peace. Each one will encourage the other, not just, here, brother, I want you to have more peace. I want you to have more peace. I want you to have more joy. I want you to have more joy. They'll put their arms around each other and their eyes are on that vision. They say, come on, brother, let's go. And they begin walking toward it. And that's the fourth point on which you build a work, that it must be of one mind and one accord. The Lord understood that. And in the early church, the Bible says they were of one heart and one soul. Brother, you get a group of people of one heart and one soul and one mind and one spirit with a common vision filled with the love of God and on the foundation of Jesus Christ and you'll make the very foundations of hell shiver and shake. The devil knows he's got big trouble. That kind of thing will march down the streets of Eureka picking up young people as it goes, just one after the other like this. And they're coming and saying, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. I'll go with you. I'll go with you. Brother, you don't have to worry about the form of the comeliness then. You don't have to have $30 seats to set in. You don't have to have glamorous buildings with the finest architecture to get it full of people. Brother, they'll yearn to be there. Not because of your building, but because of the vision, the purpose, the glory, the call of Jesus Christ. One heart and one mind. But when Satan sees that, then he's going to throw everything he's got against it. Brother, he'll help you build your work if you build it differently. He'll help you do anything you want. He'll encourage you. He won't even try to get you to backslide too hard. He knows that's pretty hard to do, so he won't bother with that. If you stand and you fight against each other and you bicker and you strive and you hit each other and you envy each other and you're against each other like this, he looks down on and says, they're still okay. Demons, angels, don't worry about them. Now let's check over here this church. Yeah, yeah, they're still going on the same trip. Okay. Now let's check this one out. Yeah, okay, that, uh-huh, uh-huh, well, still going on that, no problems there. Now let's check the honky-tonks out. Yeah, everything going there, just like, now let's check out. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Just keep up the good work, boys. I'll be back a little later. And then one day there comes a frantic call from some particularly wicked devil. Help! Help! Devils, angels, go over there, see what's the matter with that guy, what's he yelling about? Look at that church! What's happening? They're filled with love. They're built on a foundation. They got a vision. And now they're all of one mind and one accord. Do something quick. Hallelujah. 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 I think I've heard the devil yell like that on occasion. Hallelujah. Round here. I believe it. Hallelujah. But I'll tell you something. He isn't just going to sit there. Now he's going to go to work. He's going to go to work on the foundation if he can to get you to doubt that you're really saved. That's pretty hard to do. That's pretty hard to do. Then he's going to go to work if he can to take the joy out of your life. 
<clears throat> Root of bitterness. Hebrews 12, 15. Start at the 13th. To make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness, there we get it, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. He's got to go to work on somebody and get them filled with a spirit of bitterness. I didn't get my turn to preach. I can sing every bit as good as Scott Snedeker, and nobody ever let me get up there and sing. I've got scriptures in the Bible the same as anybody else has got, and I can read them too. Well, praise the Lord if you can get up and read them. Hallelujah. I believe it. That's why we have a sharing time. Whether you have something to share, share it. Well, I want somebody to call my name and say, Brother Jonas Bonus, come up here and preach his weakness for us. Brother, it isn't going to be done. But I tell you this, I'm going to encourage every person in here to contribute something to the service of God. That's our message. Let every person contribute something of himself to the service of God. When the song service is given, don't sit back and not sing. Enter into it. You say, but I don't like those fast songs. Sing them anyhow. But I don't like those slow songs. Sing them anyhow. But I don't like those new songs. Learn them. Hallelujah. Amen. Put yourself into the service of God. When it comes time to share, brother, you're going to have to learn. Now, sometimes I can make room for it, but we have some mighty eager brothers and sisters around here. And all somebody has to say, now we're going to have a sharing time, and they go like this. They're ready to get right up there now. And someone sets back and says, well, i got something to share, too. Why didn't somebody give me a chance? All you got to do is say, now it's about sharing time, and lean forward like this with your Bible. And then as soon as somebody says sharing time, say, i got something to share. You'll get your chance. And then there'll be no reason for a root of bitterness springing up and troubling you, and thereby many be defiled. Envy comes, wrath comes, strife comes. No, no. Those things must never come to this work. There must be no fighting from within. Only pressure from without. Oh, that we can handle. Hallelujah. That we can handle. If that doesn't work, Somebody will try to split the vision up. Except can two walk together, the Bible says, except they be agreed. So here we're walking together, and here's this brother who came from whatever background, and here it is. And here's this sister who came from this background, and this brother who came from this one, and this one this. And they've all got a single eye and a single vision and a single purpose, and their arms are around each other, and they're walking together like this. Now the devil says, Hey, Jim Durkin! What? Look over here. Hey, Jim. What? Look over here. Wait a minute, everyone. Wait. What is it? Here's a vision. Got one of my own. Why don't you do this? Now, at the same time he's talking to me, why don't you do this, Joe? Why don't you do this, Susie? Why don't you do this, Billy? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? Why don't... And suddenly, the grand and glorious vision 
the worldwide vision that Jesus gave us. He gave it to us. We didn't give ourselves a vision. He said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That must be the vision. There is no other vision. There is no other vision. Go, he said. As long as we see the world as our field, and he said, look up, lift up your eyes, see those fields white already under harvest, and pray that the Lord will send laborers into the heart. But no, the devil would have it. Well, why don't you go over here and you do this little thing, and why don't you go over here and you do that little thing, and why don't you go over here? And then pretty soon somebody says, well, brother, the world's a mighty big place, and there's a whole lot of things in it besides the world. Now, I see nothing wrong with doing my little thing over here, and I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to get my daisies, and I'm going to pick them, and I'm going to make a daisy chain. And it goes, do, 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 Someone says, I don't like daisy chains. I don't at all. And I'm going to go over here and I'm going to pick rosebuds. I like rosebuds. Whatever. And another one's over here and he's doing something else. Another one over here. Brother, listen to me. Lay it down. Lay it down. You have only one purpose and one vision and one reality. And that is that this world is lost without God and without hope. And we have been called by God to evangelize the world. And that's the vision. And there is no lesser vision that we can settle for. And the last thing that Satan will attempt to do is to get us to no longer be of one mind and one accord. He'll cause foolish talk, foolish accusations, silly things to be said and done so that we're no longer of one heart and one mind and one soul. But if he can't break us up on those four points on which the work is built, if he can't break us there, then he'll hurl against us everything physical he can. He'll try to kill us. He'll try to jail us. He'll try to murder us. He'll try to ruin us. He'll try to bankrupt us. Everything he will try. One thing I'm going to tell you. If the work of God is built on the one foundation of those four points, if the work of God is built on it, then Jesus said on this rock, meaning himself, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Brother, you can kill a million of us. You can jail every one of us. You can beat us till we're raw and bloody. You can bankrupt us, but we'll rise again and the church, the work of God, will go on and it will accomplish that where unto it was sent and called. Now let nothing, nothing break up those four foundation stones that I've taught you. Build on that. Whether I'm here, whether I'm not here, and I have no intention of going anywhere. I don't mean I feel any call to resign or go anyplace else. But if I'm not here, or if I am here, continue to build on those things and let no one turn you from that which has been laid down by Jesus Christ himself. I only was a mouthpiece for him. Jesus Christ himself. Build the work of God. Build the kingdom of God. Brother, before this generation is completed, if the Lord tarries, and it could well be that he may, until it is done, then I tell you something, you will go with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you'll carry it into China, you'll carry it into India, you'll carry it into Africa, and you'll carry it into South America and Mexico and Asia and Europe. You'll carry it everywhere. Now I'll tell you something. When you carried it everywhere, the light that started here in Eureka will still be burning just as bright as when we started. Amen.